Ephesians chapter 1. If you would join me and uh, let's, let's go to the Father and ask for the Spirit's help this morning. You ready? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for your glory and for our joy, we ask that Holy Spirit, you would do your work this morning. We ask that you would do your powerful, powerful work in counseling us and leading us to truth. And we pray, God, this morning that in all of that, you would be glorified. Holy Spirit, we pray you'd tear down barriers of unbelief. We pray you'd tear down strongholds that set themselves up against the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Would you do that this morning for your glory and our joy? Amen. Ah, now I can see you. Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. We're going to read that and then, uh, and then launch ourselves in. I'm absolutely fired up about the book of Ephesians. Um, as I've studied and uh, been studying and outlining and praying and looking and studying and refining, the more I get fired up about it. And so let me read Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. And, uh, and, and by the way, just... just uh, just so you see the flow of the whole deal here, pretty much verse 1 through 10 is a single sentence in Paul. And so for the sake of breaking it down properly, we'll just sort of deal with 1 to 3, 4 to 6, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, so we're going to read 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The celebration, celebration of God's blessing. See, we live in a place where the church is marginalized in regard to being considered a difference maker in society. That's Rome, Georgia. That's the South. The church is usually negotiable when it comes to competing priorities. It's a loaded statement. And it should, by hopefully the Spirit's help, fall on all of us. The church is considered a consumable commodity that can be shopped around for and consumed based on the likings of the consumer. But Jesus didn't view the community of his kingdom in those demeaning ways. The church as the community of God's kingdom is seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and is the vehicle by which the kingdom is making proclamation to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places of the manifold wisdom of God. And I said that slow on purpose because that also is loaded. The church, the community of the kingdom of God, is seated with Christ. In the heavenly places and is the vehicle by which the kingdom is making proclamation to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places of the manifold wisdom of God. And to be quite frank, this truth is larger than my taste in music and the beauty of the room we're sitting in. 
The church is the bride of Christ for whom he died to rescue and bring to himself. And therefore the church, as the community of the kingdom of God, has glorious purpose and glorious value in the heavenly places. But also a witness to the kingdom of God on this earth. Taking from our time last week, we remember that Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is going to explain the church's cosmic role as the body of the cosmic Christ. Our, our purpose is deeper than our physical footprint. It's richer than our physical footprint. Ephesians reveals the position and job description of the church in affecting God's new order, God's kingdom. Ephesians will answer the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? And what does this demand of us? Good questions. So we begin to look at Ephesians through the lens of this understanding. That, that's, that's the lens through which we are going to view the book of Ephesians. In typical Pauline fashion, the first three chapters of Ephesians is heavy doctrine. Heavy doctrine. And the last three are heavy on the practice of that doctrine. Chapters 1 to 3 are going to reveal the glorious teaching of the church's cosmic role in affecting the kingdom of God. That's chapters 1 to 3 summary. Chapters 4 to 6 will show us how this function, this cosmic function of the church directly affects what we do with our physical existence. For example, in chapter 4 verse 1, he's going to start out by saying, Now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's going to tell us what that looks like. In chapter 5 verse 1, he's going to say, Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And then the rest of chapter 5 is going to tell us how to imitate God. In chapter 6, verse 1, he's going to say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He's going to tell us what that's like. The introduction of Ephesians in verse 1 to 3 is constructed on a Hebrew blessing song called a Baraka, a blessing. The reason is that Paul introduces the Ephesians to their blessed status in Christ... And the Baraka makes sense as the vehicle for such words. Because he's talking about their blessed status in Christ. So why not put it in a little poetic form called the blessing. Which is kind of a cool little nugget for you as you look at it there. The feel of these first three verses is like that of a rising song that starts somewhat softly. And then crescendos in verse 3 on the blessed God who has placed us. In Christ. It makes sense that the song would crescendo on God, not us. So that's kind of fun too. So let's take a look at this blessing song of Paul's introduction to the Ephesians. Let me read it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's take a look first at where Paul starts. He starts in verse 1, the first part of verse 1, with this beautiful celebration of God's grace to transform servants. He starts with the celebration of God's grace to transform servants. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
Paul begins this celebration of the Father's grace to transform servants like himself. Because Paul was one who epitomized Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. He was dead in his transgressions and sins, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But this Paul, who epitomized Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, is now an apostle according to the will of God. What a glorious truth. Paul, if you remember, his real name is Saul. Named after the first king of Israel who was a head taller than any other man. And this Saul who wrote Ephesians was named after this head taller king from whose tribe he is descended. And Paul talks about this in Galatians. He's a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the line of Saul. And he bears his family name's namesake. And this Saul who wrote Ephesians was a Pharisee and he was a zealot for the law. He was a learned and educated man, well studied. And this Saul who was commissioned by his boys in Jerusalem to arrest Christians and even approve of Christians' execution like Stephen was prideful in his work and standing as an important figure of his day. Saul, larger than life, great family heritage, high-profile job, Saul. But we read in the book of Acts that this Saul who wrote Ephesians had this glorious little thing happen to him in Acts 9 where the king of the universe interrupted his plan and transformed him by the risen Christ and he took on a new name. Paul. And do you know what Paul means? It means small. <laughs> the instant contrast is clear. Saul was big in advancing his big name, but Jesus sovereignly engages Saul and shows him who the real king is, and Saul becomes Paul. The great grace of God, humility resulting in exaltation rather than arrogance resulting in destruction is what Jesus got done in that encounter. And so Paul has been liberated from the crushing bondage of his own ego. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is this glorious reminder of what Paul is talking about when he speaks of himself often. And that we contain this message in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power comes not from us who are from a fine family heritage or have a great name. But it comes in vessels of clay to show that the power comes from God and not from us. How liberating is that? So it's not up to you. It's not up to your strength or your physical stature or your family name. The power of God. You see, this grace was certainly not due to Paul's own will. He was a militant against the kingdom. And then the kingdom came crashing down on his will that held him in bondage to sin and liberated him. And all of us, if we are in Christ, we've tasted this glorious gift. And Paul celebrates this glory. Paul, who's no longer Saul, is now an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, not his own will, celebrates his status. How often we read these introductions to Paul's letters and go, we just skip over it to try to get to our favorite verse. 
But the fact that Saul, who is now Paul, starts out by introducing himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, comes loaded with an understanding that he's not just Paul, he was Saul, who thought himself big, but in the grace of God, he humbled him and made him Paul. So that people would see the Christ in him, not him. And so Paul celebrates this glory. Paul, no longer Saul, is now an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And not only did Jesus save him, Jesus gave him a work to do. He gave Paul a mission in life. Apostle. Apostle. Eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. One sent to make much of Christ in a global context. God can take murderers and give them ministry. You dare not think yourself beyond the power of God to rescue and do a great work with. How arrogant. How many of us must celebrate that fact that we're now in Christ. And that is due to the fact that we were transformed by the gospel of the kingdom when we were least looking for it. All of us. He was going to arrest more Christians. He was on his own deal. And Jesus intersected that path and transformed him and all of us. Hopefully you have that same story. How many of us must with Paul celebrate the fact that we have a purpose for what we do? And we owe this celebration as worship to the God who transformed us through the work of the gospel. We all owe Him that worship. Because if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, it's a result of the gospel's work in you. And so therefore, with Paul, we can celebrate that we're no longer what we used to be. We are what we've been made in Christ. And we've been given a purpose to execute in life. Whether you like your job or not is not the point. The point is that your transformation in mind by the gospel results in our salvation and divine purpose in your work and in my work to know Christ and make Him and His kingdom known. And this is bigger than any of us. It will outlive us unless the Lord returns first. So Paul celebrates the beginning of this letter the glory and grace of God to transform sinners. And such the Ephesians once were. Like Him, they were. But now, like Him in Christ, they are. And He's about to unpack that for them. And this morning, that is something to celebrate. If you are in Christ, it wasn't your own doing. As John says in John chapter 1, not according to the will of man, but God. God's gracious to have intersected you and intercepted your path to destruction. And so this morning with Paul, we can celebrate the grace of God to liberate sinners. And hopefully you are in that group. But he moves to the second part of verse 1, down through verse 2, with the celebration of God's grace to the saints in Ephesus. Listen to how he picks up the second part of verse 1. Two. So he's writing to somebody. Paul, who's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful In Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this baraka, this blessing, this celebrative poem of the grace of God, he celebrates God's grace to the saints in Ephesus. Paul moves on to celebrating what God has done in these Christians. Two words stand out here that Paul 
brings up in this celebration saints and faithful. Saints and faithful. Now this is fun. So pardon me for a moment while I have fun. Both of these words are adjectives. They're describing words. Saints, faithful, describing words, adjectives. Paul is describing the Ephesians. Paul doesn't use the noun version of saint or the noun version of faithful. In the noun form, the implications would be that these Ephesians are innately saints or innately faithful. That's their nature. Like in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, noun, not adjective. Your word doesn't contain truth. It is truth. That's its nature. It is truth and is the standard. He doesn't call the Ephesians saints and faithful in the noun version, but in an adjectival form. He's describing them, not naming their innate status. Because that would not be true. You see, they used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, right? But Paul uses the adjectival form, and Paul is describing their state, not their nature. This is huge. Because by nature, the Ephesians, we read in verse 3 of chapter 2, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's their nature. Children of wrath. But these things have changed. Jesus has invaded with His elective grace and He's transformed the Ephesians from children of wrath to the place that, sinners though they are, He describes them now as saints and faithful. That's fun. They're innately sinners. They're children of wrath. But because of the invasion of Jesus Christ into their lives, He has now transformed them so that they're adjectivally described As saints and faithful. Not because they're innately saintly and faithful. But because Jesus has put that on them. You see it's clear from chapters 4 to 6 that they still sin. So how saintly is that right? How faithful is that? But their sin is no longer counted against them for their behavior. And so he describes them as saint and faithful. In case you're having trouble making the connection, this is exactly the work of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to sinners in such a way that they, although left with a flesh of sin, are counted as saints and having been faithful. Listen, you understand this morning, you and I still sin. I am not holy. You are not holy. I am not faithful. You are not faithful. But because of Christ's justifying work on the cross, and by faith we've repented of the rebellion and come to Christ, He counts us as saints and counts us as faithful, even though we're not. This is why those who understand that don't come to Jesus and go, Wow, you owe me this. We come and we go, Thank you. I have nothing. I bring filthy rags. And I'm not innately saintly or faithful, but you count me as such because you are. And so we bring worship. How 
dare we not sing to Him as though it mattered my opinion of the song? You owe Him that. I owe Him that. Does that make sense? This is not a consumable commodity. Worship isn't here for you. The band isn't playing for your ears. They're playing to worship the King. And you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. I'm not faithful. You're not faithful. But Jesus counts me as saying and counts me as faithful. So I'm going to come and sing to Him no matter how bad I sound. Because I can't help it. I bring nothing. They brought nothing. And Paul reminds them of that. And the glorious gift of grammar. The reason they're saints and faithful, they're in Christ. That's why they're in Christ. Notice the language at the end of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's huge. Why are they faithful? Why are they saints? Because they're in Christ. Not because they're innately faithful. Or innately saintly. You see, if they were still in themselves, they wouldn't be saints or faithful. They would be naturally children of wrath. But due to the elective work of Christ, they're in Him and counted in their behavior as saints and faithful. That is something to stink and celebrate. And Paul is celebrating that with them as he reminds them of their status in Christ at the introduction of the letter. We're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer counted as sinners. We're saints. Why? Because we don't sin? No, we do. But being in the sinless and faithful one, Jesus, we're credited with His perfection and faithfulness. Glory to God. And this is indeed really, really good news. That's why the gospel is called good news. That is truly something to celebrate. And because they are saints and faithful, these Ephesians can receive this typical Pauline greeting that he brings us in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they're counted in Christ as saints and faithful, these beloved children of God have Him as their Father and receive grace and peace from God their Father. That's why he can say grace and peace to you, because it's theirs in abundance. Listen, Three Rivers Community Church, if you are in Christ, grace and peace are yours in abundance from your Father who has brought you into His family, placed you in His kingdom, put His seal of His Spirit on you, and that is truly something to celebrate. Hear the words of Scripture, grace and peace to you. Yours, mine, ours, because of Christ's righteousness to us. And then verse... Three. And I'm going to skip to the second part of verse 3, and I will tell you why in a moment, okay? And this is Paul's celebration of the saints' blessing. Look at the second part of verse 3. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul celebrates the saints' blessing in Christ. Because these saints and faithful ones are at peace with God and receiving His grace, they are now blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Remember, Ephesians is going to show us our cosmic placing with the cosmic Christ and the ruling of this sphere whereby the kingdom is advancing. So he wants them to see how in Christ, where Christ is seated, they are seated with him and receive in him every spiritual blessing. Now we're going to start next week in verse 4 at looking at these blessings, but I think it's imperative we take note of why there are spiritual blessings to be enjoyed. The reason is two words. It's there in verse 3. In Christ. In Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you that there's more there than we have time to play with. That's why we're going to study the rest of the book. But those two words are gargantuan. They're massive. In Christ. Vines. Branches. Branches in a vine. We're talking about our identity. Who we are. By my count. And you look at my little footnote. I explain why my count may be different than some others. So I'm not going to do that here. It's why it's a footnote. By my count. Paul uses the language of in Christ. Or a synonymous Synonymous language such as in Christ Jesus or in him, him being Jesus, or in whom, whom being Jesus. He uses that phrase or its synonym some 33 times in Ephesians. And the bulk of those 33 occurrences happen, guess where? In the first two chapters. Because <coughs> you remember, chapters 1 to 3 is Paul laying out this glorious doctrine of our, our, our status in Christ. So the bulk of these 33 occurrences are going to happen in the first two chapters. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he commences to unpack those spiritual blessings in Christ. And so what I've done is I have put those in the notes for you by chapter and verse reference. And I'm going to do a quick rundown of them for you and try not to start shouting as an old school Baptist. I had a professor who used to say, hold my baby and I'll shout. Because back in the day, you had to bring your baby. And if you shouted, it was a full-bodied experience. And you couldn't hold your baby while you were shouting. So he said, hold my baby and I'll shout. So I will try to not shout like a good old-fashioned full-bodied Baptist would do. But these 33 occurrences are glorious because they tell us about who we are in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 2, we are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 3, we are saints and we're blessed in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4, we are chosen in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 5, through Christ the Father has adopted us as sons. Chapter 1, verse 6, we are blessed in the beloved. Christ is beloved by the Father, and we are in Christ, and therefore, draw the conclusion, we are beloved by the Father. But only in Christ. 1, 7, we have redemption in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, all things are, all things will be united in Christ. And all things scattered under creation and under heaven will be united back to Christ and only in Christ. I can't wait to unpack that one. 
That affects ministry, everything. Jesus is putting together the broken world again through the community of the kingdom of God. And it only happens in Christ. 111, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 12, we hope in Christ. In other words, our hope is centered nowhere else except in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 13, there are two occurrences. We heard the truth in Him, and we believed in Him. In other words, truth came through hearing about Jesus, and our belief must be centered in Jesus. You see why Christianity is all about Jesus? You leave Jesus behind, you have nothing. Chapter 1, verse 20, Father has exercised... Oh, I left off verse 15. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15, we have faith in Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. Chapter 1, verse 20, Father has exercised power toward us in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5, with Christ we are made alive. Chapter 2, verse 6, there are three occurrences. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ. And we are in the heavenly places in Christ. Now this is why, by the way, the Ephesians didn't have to fear the principalities and powers. When you read the book of Acts, you discover that when these Ephesians believed the gospel, they took their books of magical arts and occultic stuff and they burned them. This is a very spiritual city. And because of their awareness of the spiritual power, there was a sense in the Ephesians of fear. And part of Paul's encouragement to them is Jesus is seated there and rules it. And now you're seated with Him. There's no fear. You have authority over that. So take it and advance the kingdom. And so we're raised with, seated with, and we're in the heavenly places with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7. Father has shown us kindness in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. We are Father's workmanship in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13, in Christ we've been brought near. One of Satan's greatest lies is for you to feel like you are distant from God or God is distant from you. In Christ you are near. Chapter 2, verse 15, in Him we are now one new man, no longer two divided. This is why unity among mankind is possible only in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 18, through Him we have access to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 21, the household of God is held together in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 22, in Christ we are being built into God's dwelling by the Spirit. How fun! Jesus is working on His church. And we are in Him. And guess what He's doing? When you are least aware, He's hammering and sanding and grinding and working on us. Because we're in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 22, in Christ we're being built into God's dwelling by the Spirit. Chapter 3, six, verse 6, Gentiles are now partakers of the promise in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12, two occurrences. We have boldness and access through faith in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 21, two occurrences. We are taught in Christ and the truth is in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 8, we are light in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, children ought to obey their parents in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 18, we are to pray in the Spirit. And you can see my footnote of why I included this one. To put on the armor for fighting the spiritual battle. Chapter 6, verse 21, ministry is defined as being in Christ. 
The ministerial implications of that one are huge. There are no such thing as professional ministers. If you're in Christ, you're a minister of the gospel. That's where ministerial power is had. Not in what you do, but in who is in you. And to whose kingdom you belong. This is reality. But oh, how easy it is to hear this. And forget about it. And not live in it. It, Three very, very, very quick applications to try to live in this. And, and, and I don't want you to hear, if you do these three things, if you try these three things, it this is going to be a war. I'm not going to promise you if you walk out of here and try these three things that all things are going to shape up and be better tomorrow. This will be a war. This will be a fight. The first one, to try to apply this being in Christ, this glorious truth of who we are in Him, First, we have to believe, Father, that our blessedness is a reality. We have to believe that. We've been beset with the cancer of naturalism that causes us to doubt anything that isn't empirically testable. The problem with naturalism is that it cannot account for the supernatural. And the world's figuring that out. Hebrews 1.6 reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must hold on to our tiny mustard seed side faith that our citizenship is in heaven. And we have to remember that. Our faith, I would argue, is the target of Satan's temptation. If you see 1 Thessalonians 3.5, Paul sent, because he had to be evacuated from Thessalonica very quickly and he didn't get to finish his work there. And so Paul was eager to write back to them and 1 Thessalonians is probably the first New Testament book penned very early. Alright? And so Paul writes back to encourage them because they had been hearing that my my relatives, they were thinking Jesus is coming back like next year and so their relatives have died and they believe the gospel and they're confused like, where are they? And so Paul writes back to encourage the Thessalonians and you read that glorious ending that he has there about the resurrection and when Christ returns. That they're good and he will raise them up first, so fear not. And so he writes in chapter 3 verse 5 in 1 Thessalonians, he wanted to find out about their faith for fear that somehow their tempter had tempted them. Meaning the object of his temptation would be their faith. You need to understand that Satan will come at your trust in him. You can just go ahead and know this. Any thought you have that questions the goodness of God and His faithfulness to you did not come from the Holy Spirit. And it's not neurons firing wrongly in your brain. It is satanic deception. It's a spiritual struggle. And He will come after your trust in Him. Be aware. No. We have to believe that our blessedness is a reality in Christ. So fight for the faith. Open your Bible and read. I love when the psalmist says, Your testimonies are my delight. What are the testimonies? The stories of God's faithfulness. If you just don't know that you can trust God, read the story of Joseph. Please. Your testimonies are a delight to my soul. You're trustworthy. He didn't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I'm in pretty good company. I think you have this. And you have to remind yourself about three minutes later, two, three, whatever, four minutes later, because you'll forget. 
But you got to believe, you got to trust, you have to go to the scriptures and trust Holy Spirit to give the precious gift of faith. But you got to believe, you got to fight for that, guys. It's worth fighting for. And I give you passages to look at there. A second way to apply this is we have to focus on our blessedness as truth. Colossians 1, 1 to 3 is a glorious reality. Often, Colossians 3, 1 to 3 doesn't feel true. This is why we don't trust our feelings. You see, our inner person has been transformed by the gospel of the kingdom, but our physical person is still broken. You know, you understand that? You're a body and a soul. And you're dead, but your body's still alive. And Jesus comes to you and He wakens you, gives you life, saves you. And now all of a sudden there's conflicts going on. She's like, I used to didn't, I used to want to do that. No, I don't want to do it. My body wants to do it. My soul didn't want to. There's, there's a war. It used to, you didn't even care. That's because now your soul's alive, but your body's still broke. And there's a war going on. So we don't trust our feelings. Your body will lie to you. It will tell you you want things that will kill you. And if you give in to it, they will kill you. This is why He puts His Spirit in us as the guarantee of our inheritance. We're going to learn in Ephesians. Our inner person has been transformed, but our body's still broke. The inner and the physical parts are so interwoven that it's hard to pull them neatly apart. We believe, but we need help with our unbelief. That's the man when he came to Jesus. Jesus, can you do anything? Can I do anything? Nothing's impossible. Just trust me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Anybody wrestle with that? We trust, but we often doubt. We know with our reasoning what Scripture says, but our feelings don't match up with what we know to be true. This is when we have to come after Jesus and do what Colossians 3, 1 to 3 tells us is, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. But my life is not this. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And we have to focus on this blessed reality that I am in Christ and that's where life's at. So therefore, what's our job? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all this other stuff. I will take care of that. But seek me. Come after me in my kingdom. So to focus on this blessed truth of Colossians 3, 1-3, that our life is in Christ. And we seek after that and let Jesus fix everything else. And then finally, we need to ask for growing experience of our blessed status in Christ. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said, Father's good, so when you ask Him for stuff, He gives you good stuff. You ask your dad for fish, He's not going to give you a snake. Bread's not going to give you a rock. How much more of the Father will you ask Him? He'll give you all the Holy Spirit you want. You know what the Lord's telling us there? Is that we can have all of the operation of the Spirit of God in our life that we want. Just come and ask Him. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us will point us to Christ, lead us to Christ, counsel us in Christ, convict us when we're wrong, affirm us when we're right. He will do everything Jesus said He will do. And the Father said, all of it's yours. Come and ask me for it. So if you're having trouble with your identity in Christ, try these things. Fight for belief. Know that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Come after Him and ask the Father for all the Spirit you can handle.
And then we come to the back side of our text. That's Paul's celebration of God's glory and God's blessedness. Chapter 1, verse 3, the first part. Blessed, old school, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul orders the text the way he does. 3A comes before 3B. We know that because we can know our alphabet. God is blessed, so we are blessed as we are placed in Him in Christ. So Paul orders the text the way he does so that we will see that our blessed state is due to the truth that God is blessed in His very nature and that our blessed state is due to His blessed nature. We're to understand the highlight of the text is not our blessed state because we've been blessed in the gospel, but the highlight is the nature of God who makes us blessed in Christ. That's what we're to understand. That's, that's the theological intention. You see, you're blessed because God's very nature is that. I ordered the points the way I did. I reversed them on purpose. I put 3B before 3A. To highlight this reality so that some foolish person would not dare to believe our blessed status is somehow more vital than the God who makes us blessed. So the order of our points of teaching this morning from the text is expositional in their order to help make the point Paul is making in this baraka, this blessing. The crescendo here, according to Scripture, is opposite of what the likes of a Victoria Osteen would say it is. That we worship God not because God is God or deserving, but because worshiping God will make us happy and God wants us to just be happy above our worship of Him. In other words, her theology is God's chief end is to glorify man and enjoy man forever. Paul leaves us with no doubt about that in this passage. Our blessed status is because God's nature is that of blessed. Not because... We are the object. I love how Paul defines blessed in verse 3. It truly makes me excited because my blessed status is not due to my mental state at the moment, whether I'm feeling happy or not. Because how many of us, when we're not feeling happy, feel blessed? You're mourning. I don't feel real blessed. That's because we have a false understanding of what it means to be blessed. It makes me excited because my blessed status isn't due to my financial status at the moment. Whether I'm barely getting by or amassing stuff that my kids are going to divide and throw away when I'm dead. I'll go to the dump today and I'll dump out a bunch of my mom and dad's junk. It's worthless to me. It's worthless to them. So my blessed status isn't how I'm feeling in the moment, nor does it have anything to do with where I'm at financially. Aren't you glad your relationship with God is not determined by how you feel or how much you have at the moment? I am. Because often I feel overwhelmed and often I'm barely getting by. Blessed is the state of God. 
Blessed literally means the happy state of. Blessed means that God's state is that of eternal happiness. The God of the Bible is a happy God. Not happy like an emotive high because of an external circumstance, but happy as the very nature of God. Contented, completely at rest in Himself, completely at rest in Trinitarian community. And Paul said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we don't simply describe blessed as abundant material possessions alone. Because one can have abundance and be cursed and miserable. Blessed is being in Christ and contented in Christ regardless of external circumstances. That is what it is to be blessed in Christ. This is why the church globally outshines us. They need less psychological help. They need less resources. And they are still incredibly contented. I'm ashamed when I'm around global Christians often. God is blessed. He's the definition of blessed. Therefore, if we are in Christ, guess what you are? blessed the problem is our heart needs to catch up with the truth of God's word please don't listen to your heart it will lie to you we have Jesus and we have all we need to be at rest and content isn't that good news we learn in Colossians 1 1 to 3 I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God and when I'm in Christ I have life And the availability of Trinitarian community that image the Father, Son, and Spirit that I am in. And that is all that is needed. And that is something to celebrate. Therefore, the rich, the poor, the hurting, the happy can come together in Christ and be one body. Because he's torn the hostile wall division down. He made the two one, Paul will tell us later in the book. This is why it's a sin to segregate the body by race and socioeconomic status. Because your blessed status has nothing to do with either one of those. In conclusion, wrapping this up, we're done. One minute. The community of the kingdom of God has much to celebrate. We have a lot to celebrate this morning. Our status of blessedness is the nuclear reaction that defines who we are and what we are to do. We are to abide in the vine. Go to His harvest and His peace and easy yoke. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers and for kingdom fruit. And enjoy watching Jesus bring the fruit as He rules the war in the heavenly places and on earth and advancing His kingdom. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's what He said. So before we launch to work, let's make sure we revel in and celebrate our lofty and powerful status of being in Christ and blessed in being in Christ beyond measure so that we can do the work well and full of joy and happiness of being blessed in Christ and then therefore making much of Christ and exalting Jesus as the King and our goal. Let's celebrate that together as we worship King Jesus and let's proclaim to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God to do what He has done. You understand? That's what's at stake. Paul says it here. That what's about what we're doing now is making a proclamation in the heavenlies to the principalities and powers of the wisdom of God. 
Dude, I'm telling you, that, that will trump anything else you got to do the rest of the day. And as bad as I hate to admit it, that's better than college football. Go dogs anyway, but yes, it's better. It truly is better. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, who sits in the heavenlies, and you have, who have in your grace placed us with him, we, we come before you to say to you, you are worthy and you are good, and I'm, my mind is blown right now. So Holy Spirit, I need you to come and make much of the Son. Help us to make much of the Son. Empower our souls to, to make much of you and to glorify you and to exalt you. Help our faith embolden and muster our faith. Give us a taste and a glimpse of what it is to, to enjoy you and to seek you and to come after you and to find you and seek you with all our hearts. Would you do that great work in us? We need you to come do that right now. This is your time. We're your people and we desperately need to taste you and see you and I pray, God, you would pull that off. God, I pray for, for, for our leaders now, this band that is going to lead us I pray, God, that you would captivate their attention with you. And as they're captivated with you, help us to be captivated with you. Holy Spirit, do your work, please. This is your time, we pray in Jesus' name.